welcome to Discover Pediatric Surgery. My name is Andrew Grieve and I look forward to being your host today on this exciting episode. I would like to welcome Mark Davenport who is with us today um, of all places in Milan, Italy. He's going to chat to us today about biliary atresia. Mark is probably, if not the most famous Probably one of the best and well-renowned uh, pediatric surgeons with regards to bariatresia. So we're very privileged to have him here with us today. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Uh, you can say a million kind things, but I quite agree with you. <laughs> um, Mark, just to kick off, can I ask, where did your interest in bariatresia arise from? Um, okay, yes. Uh, always start at the beginning. Good point. Uh, it started from, as most things do, a case report. So uh, I was a junior. Uh, this was my first uh, postgraduate paediatric surgical job in Leeds, of all places. Uh, Leeds in England, by the way. And one of the things which came in was a little a baby, a jaundiced baby, who... Uh, was of Asian descent, came from Bradford, so came from a, an, an Asian, I think, Punjabi family, um, and it was being investigated for biliary atresia. What was different from this baby is uh, that they proved that the baby actually had uh, neonatal malaria. Okay. Um, and this had been uh, uh, transplacentally acquired uh, when the mother had gone back to wherever, and uh, uh, she clearly had lost any kind of uh, innate immunity, uh, got malaria herself and carried the baby exposed to the, the malarial parasite. Because neonatal malaria is actually very rare in, in places that have malaria uh, because the, the mothers have built up uh, a, a degree of immune defence. Anyway, this, this, and the question was, was it bilirubinuria? Or was it neonatal malaria, which is known to have uh, uh, an influence, an effect on the uh, on the liver? Mm-hmm. And John Beck had to do a couple of laparotomies and uh, show that actually the the, uh, the the bile duct itself was patent. So, as it was sufficiently uncommon, indeed rare, we wrote it up, and it became my first paper uh, on neonatal malaria, and it's still there to this day in the archives of disease of childhood in about, I'll say, 1983. Uh, so that I that sort of gave me a... I had to do a lot of reading around it, and that gave me a sort of um, uh, uh, knowledge uh, of the condition itself and always caught my eye. I always sort of looked at, uh, at uh, these um, kind of babies and uh, added them to a list of things that, well, that may be an interesting condition to work out what's, what's actually happening. Yeah, so you actually raise an interesting point. I mean, most neonates have got some element of jaundice. Um, you know, at what point do you think about investigating them? And when do you kind of consider that these might be pathological? Okay. So the, uh, that, that, that is a good question because, uh, uh, as, as you say, a lot of physiological jaundice. Now, it's a word that gets banded about an awful lot. It's a great defence for the, the general practitioners, the health visitors, when they actually miss those few cases that genuinely turn out to be pathological because they're right 99% of the time. It is physiological jaundice and it will fade. 
So the recommendations that the uh, paediatric habitologists in the UK, uh, stemming from the great Alex Mowat uh, in King's, who was the, the founder, if you like, of paediatric habitology in the 1970s, uh, he said uh, if uh, you get persistent jaundice beyond 14 days, you need an explanation for it. Now, as you know, physiological jaundice is unconjugated jaundice. So it's actually relatively straightforward to say, uh, okay, let's do a blood test. Let's find out what its conjugated status is. And if it turns out to be conjugated jaundice, you really haven't got the physiological defence and and you must then look for some kind of other explanation. All right. So we're obviously going to talk about biliary atresia. What's your current sort of definition or explanation or what what is biliary atresia? Uh, Great question, very difficult to answer. (laughs) Um, So we, we tend to start off with the phrase an obliterative cholangiopathy. And all that means is there isn't a lumen to it um, and it affects both the intra and extrapanic ducts. So it's a sort of uh, a handy phrase. Um, What it doesn't really um, uh, give uh, is when it starts. Is it really a condition of uh, failure of development? So the bile ducts are simply not there at the time of birth or having developed your bile ducts, whether in the perinatal period or the postnatal period, something happens to them um, and damages and destroys otherwise normally developed um, biliary atresia. And that, that's a sort of key question. And only re- relatively recently have we got a little bit of evidence that perhaps suggests it's the former rather than the latter. As you said, it's not a, an easy disease to characterise in many ways in terms of its origin. But there's obviously distinct uh, subtypes and distinct clinical yeah. entities that we have. What are the different uh, subtypes of okay. atresia and, and in which ways can we classify atresia? Okay. So uh, there's a couple of ways of thinking about classification. You can think about classification simply in terms of what you see in front of you as the surgeon. So that's, that's almost like an anatomical classification. And that classification we tend to use is based on the Japanese Association of Pediatric Surgical Classification, which uh, defines the type according to the most proximal level of obstruction. So that basically there's three types. So the type 1, which in most series would be about 5% uh, of the series, uh, is where the most distal uh, level, most proximal, sorry, uh, level of obstruction is in the common bile duct. Uh, so everything above that should contain bile. Okay. And it's the only real type that you do a laparotomy on and you can see bile in the gallbladder. Right. That's often the, the biggest clue that you've got that this is biliary atresia. When you look at the gallbladder, it's either atrophic uh, uh, or, or hypotrophic, or if it's got something in it, uh, it ain't got bile in it. Mm. Uh, and as I say, if that's the case, you know this is biliary atresia, you could afford to increase the length and size of your incision to to actually do the operation. But the type 1s are often associated with a cyst, which I'll I'll talk about in a moment. Uh, Type 2 is where the level of obstruction is in the common hepatic duct. Uh, So you you recognise that having transected above it, you should actually see two distinct 
uh, lumens. This is the right and left hepatic duct, which are left. But that's rare. Only 1-2% of most people's experience. So most of them uh, are this type 3, where, you, where you're transecting the most proximal part of the biliary remnant, and you can't see any kind of lumen. Uh, there are microscopic ductules, but, but as the name suggests, you can't see that. Um, uh, and that would be the type 3, or the old term uncorrectable, uh, was used for that uh, type. So that's an anatomical classification. Okay. Um, when you think about it, well, perhaps we can uh, say, say something about its etiology. So we then look at what we would call variants of biliary atresia, variants. So again... Most of them uh, are what we would call isolated biliary atresia. So the isolated, as the definition suggests, there's nothing else wrong, no other abnormalities, and it's typically obliterative. There's no cyst formation, okay. um, and there's nothing else really to give you a clue. And that's about 80, 85% of them. So if, if it's not isolated, there's, there's usually some clue as to what's caused it. So uh, the syndromic one, that's uh, a very good example. It's one that we try to define very early on. So uh, in these, they're obviously different babies. These babies, when you open the abdomen, well, sometimes uh, they've got situs inversus. Uh, so the liver is dominantly on the left-hand side. Uh, we define its name on the presence of a splenic malformation. Uh, so typically they've got polysplenia, so the polyspleens uh, are on the right-hand side. And uh, they're very easy to recognise uh, uh, when you when you get in. And typically, their biliary atresias, the actual bile uh, bile ducts themselves, if you like, are very scanty. Uh, they've almost always got no common bile duct. Difficult to find gallbladder. Not much to resect. Mm. Uh, they have also got a range of other uh, pathologies associated with them. So. Uh, the the venous drainage of the intestine, uh, where it goes to the portal vein. Uh, the portal vein is pre-duodenal, as, as opposed to going behind the duodenum. The cava, uh, should you try and look for it, is absent. There's no cava at all in about 40%. Uh, there's very often uh, other congenital cardiac abnormalities. Um, and uh, something clearly has gone fundamentally wrong with the embryonic phase of development of these kids. Uh, so we believe that the, the, the thing itself that's causing all of this kind of uh, maldevelopment is occurring from about day 20 gestational age to about day 40. And when you look and talk to embryologists uh, about what's happening there, it, it covers the development of the, uh, the vitiline venous system, the, uh, the development of what's happening and what will become the cava at the back of the abdomen, uh, it covers uh, the spleen itself. Sometimes you don't get any spleen, which is why we use the term splenic malformation as opposed to polysplenia syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, and something's happened to, uh, the, to influence those, uh, the development. Uh, now, we, uh, in, in about 1992, uh, 93, we wrote a paper pulling all these babies that we'd had in a series at King's together um, and looking for sort of connections. And an obvious uh, connection was uh, what had happened antenatally to the mother. Right. And uh, when we probed uh, maternal history, uh, there was an awful lot of maternal diabetes uh, in that particular group. 
Um, and when you look at the uh, the characteristics of maternal diabetes, it turns out that it can form these strange combinations of abnormalities. So very unusual abnormalities such as transposition of the great vessels, such mm. as sacral agenesis, are also much more common in diabetic pregnancies than they are in non-diabetic pregnancies. So we, again, made the leap, the speculative leap, that uh, maternal diabetes is a cause of this kind of syndromic uh, biliary atresia. So I mean, it begs the question then, is, I mean, is biliary atresia, with all these different things, the same disease, or is this really the end point, the kind of symptom of whatever might be the initiating factor, and there might be various factors, and biliary atresia is just the end result? That's exactly right. I think that's the, the kind of uh, reasoning that we've got. It's, biliary atresia itself is just a catch-all, an umbrella term, and it describes what you're seeing at the end of some kind of pathological process. But there are many roads to that end point, and this is simply one of them. Um, and uh, a lot of the work we've been doing in the past 20 years is trying to identify new roads. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, again, you've, you've got to look, the key to all of this is to look closely at your clinical series uh, and try and uncover relationships and associations. So I was going to ask you whether biliary atresia is congenital or acquired, but I, I suppose it could be both, really. It still could be both. The acquired biliary atresia, uh, we reported, um, I think it was three or four babies, uh, in a series in the late 1990s who where we actually physically used the word acquired biliary atresia. Now, why did we select out only those three or four babies from the, what had become a, uh, a series of over uh, two, three hundred babies? Well, they were different uh, in a number of different ways that they they presented late. I think uh, two or maybe three of them were ex-preterm babies and had an awful lot of problems with NEC, prolonged ventilation, um, and things like that. And eventually, uh, they'd come, if you like, to a, a paediatric surgeon, uh, done a laparotomy, and there was, there was no doubt about it, there was an atretic biliary tree, mm. um, but there were also pro- proximal patency of the ducts as well, which is not what you would find normally in biliary atresia. Uh, but it, by definition, there was no lumen, so you had to use the term atresia. Um, and even when we were operating on these typically older babies, 150 days, 160 days, where you really wouldn't expect a great result, uh, they did very well. Okay. Um, so the implication was that they definitely had a normal bile duct at some point in their lives, which had become damaged, maybe by ischemia. Mm. Um, and they had uh, sort of come through. So we, we restricted the word acquired simply for that tiny proportion. Okay. Um, the To try and say, well, okay, what about the rest of them? Could they be acquired in some way? Um, some of them may be related to a virus, and perhaps I'll talk about viral etiology in a moment or expand on it. But the, I think the single most important Again, clinical observation that we've got that suggests timing uh, actually has come from Texas uh, very recently, relatively recently. Uh, So a guy called Sonny Harpervat in Houston, Texas, um, looked at their, again, looked at their clinical series. Now, being Texas, being American, obviously you can't be born without someone sticking a needle in (laughs) 
as rapidly as possible. And there, in their series of about 30-odd biliary atresias, they looked back at the day one and day two bloods that had been taken. Now, they'd been taken not necessarily for, would it be biliary atresia? They'd been taken because uh, they wanted a baseline for their bilirubin. So they knew their total bilirubin. Mm. What they were able to do was go back, convince the biochemists who had uh, uh, done the actual uh, split bilirubin, not necessarily reported, but done it, and look at the conjugated values on all right. these babies. Right. And what they'd found was that on day one and day two of life, um, all of their babies that turned out to have bilirubin all had elevated levels of conjugated bilirubin, day one, day two. Okay. Now, when you looked at their total bilirubins, there was no difference with any kind of controls. So it wasn't the total bilirubin, it was the fraction that was conjugated that was abnormal. Yeah. The obvious... Um, sort of uh, reasoning to explain that is that at that time of birth that's our definition of congenital it's, it's present at the time of birth they'd already had an occluded obstructed bile duct mm. they didn't know that yet they didn't know that then uh, they had to wait for the typical sort of features of bilirubin to develop later on yeah um but it, it's it certainly was a sort of wake-up call to the community um, because there's a, again, perhaps we'll talk about the experimental animal models, but uh, they were they were sort of uh, predicated uh, on this kind of postnatal or perinatal destruction of bile ducts rather than something that's actually present uh, by the day of birth. Hmm. So, I mean, viruses have been quite strongly implicated in bilirubin, yeah. but never really proven, yeah. you know, tangibly to actually be a causative factor. Have yeah. we gotten any further with that? Okay. So, we, we uh, as you say, for a long time, 1980s, I think, they started looking at serology of viruses. And the first virus that they looked at was the rheovirus, R-E-O, uh, rheovirus, uh, and uh, showed that in some series there was a, a higher teta against the rheovirus in bilirubin versus controls, uh, implying that the virus itself had in some way cause the uh, the biliary damage, bile duct damage. Uh, now, again, it's became relatively controversial over the years. People were looking for physical evidence of the virus, not really finding it. It's very difficult to find a virus in a liver of a baby with biliary atresia. Um, but then the animal model came along, and the animal model itself uh, showed that if you uh, exposed um, uh, uh, animals, typically uh, mice and rats, uh, to um, uh, a virus at the latter stages of the uh, the pregnancy, then you could approximately produce the biliary atresia pathology. Not not completely, but approximately, mm. um, and that allowed a lot of a lot of um, technical mechanical stages in the inflammatory process to be perhaps worked out, uh, but. Fundamentally, what we're interested in is the human, not the yeah. rat, not the mouse, the human. <laughs> so we looked at our own, again, we looked at our own series uh, for another virus that's been suggested as being important, which is the cytomegalovirus, CMV. And uh, that is a common uh, virus, and a lot of babies get exposed to it in their first uh, years of life. It's a GI type of pathogen. Um, and we know it, it can cause congenital uh, abnormalities typically it affects the uh, the growing brain and, and the uh, and the ear so 
a lot of these babies with congenital CMV uh, have hearing impairment as their first thing. But we also know it can go to the liver. Mm. And uh, uh, typically the, you test as part of the viral workup of uh, jaundice babies, you test for CMV. Um, and we uh, looked at our own series for babies that had been tested for CMV, specifically for the presence of IgM antibodies. And if you get a positive IgM antibody, that that's, is strongly suspicious that they it's the it's the baby that's had the the is the baby that's producing uh, the uh, the antibody response. It's not a transplacental IgG type of phenomenon from the mum. Yeah. Uh, so we identified a cohort of IgM positive babies, and in our series, that was about sort of ten percent of our babies had IgM CMV IgM positive serology. And when we looked at their clinical features as compared to the IgM negative group, there were very clear differences. So the CMV IgM positive group uh, came to Kasai came to surgery late compared to the IgM negative. They had bigger spleens at the time of presentation. Um, there were obvious biochemical differences. They were more jaundiced. Uh, they had uh, lower platelet counts. Um, and when we looked at the liver biopsies taken at the time of the Kasai's, that was also different. They had a much more um, inflammatory uh, picture uh, to their histology, uh, much greater uh, small cell infiltrate uh, compared to the, the typical just cholestatic uh, picture that you'd see in an IgM negative baby. So we'd shown clinical differences, we'd shown uh, histological differences, um, and it seemed rational to say, well, actually, perhaps the CMV genuinely is causing this kid with biliary atresia. Um, we went on to look at the, the outcome of those particular cohort of CMV IgM positive babies. And to our, my great surprise, I didn't realise this at the time, uh, they had a terrible outcome. Mm-hmm. So we were only clearing the jaundice of 10% of them, which is really tragic. Uh, some of them were dying. They, you don't tend to die with, with untreated biliary atresia. Uh, but a high proportion of these were simply dying, um, and uh, albeit on a transplant waiting list. So they were, again, they declared their differences uh, with how they behaved. Uh, and most recently, because this, uh, we recognised that they are a poor prognosis group, we'd started to actively give uh, babies with IgM-positive um, bilirubinuria antiviral treatment. Uh, so we'd use combinations of valgancyclovir and gancyclovir in those babies, in addition to a Kasai. So it's being used here as an adjuvant therapy. Mm. And lo and behold, we changed the prognosis. So in the in those that had been specifically treated with Kasai, with antiviral therapy, their clearance of jaw has improved to about sixty percent or so. Sure. So. I mean that that's that's remarkable. A lot of skepticism in our unit, but the mm. the, the figures are there. There's, there's no question. So, uh, in fact, we're uh, we're presenting that kind of data this summer at uh, UPSA uh, in in Paris. So, uh, hopefully, we can generate interest in perhaps looking more closely at this kind of subset, this cohort uh, of babies. When did people first realise that there was a time dependent okay. factor on operating for biliary atresia? Uh, so the, uh, as I say, it, 
It almost goes without saying. This condition itself, if you if you don't do anything, there is an, an inexorable decline uh, in liver function, uh, and it ends up with an end-stage liver disease. There is an inexorable rise in the degree of fibrosis. Uh, so the macrophages are switching on the fibrotic process. And ultimately, it all will descend into cirrhotic chaos. But that takes time. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you can never say, well, I would never say, this is a disease which is getting better over time. Let's wait and see. Mm-hmm. Um, now... Trying to prove that actually in series is quite difficult. Statistically, trying to prove the damn relationship with age can be tricky. And one of the problems, as perhaps I've alluded to, is that there's not just one brand of, of uh, bilirubinuria, and you don't really know when the disease starts. You don't really know, perhaps, if the the uh, the fibrotic process is aggressive or is it slower in some way. So. Uh, Biliary atresia cases vary. Um, and the first sort of, uh, I think Kasai recognised this uh, in his original Japanese work over the 1960s and 70s, that those babies that he was doing at four months, five months, really weren't doing as well as the ones that he'd been doing at, at, at one month. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, um, at King's College Hospital, uh, did a very influential study uh, published in the Lancet uh, in I think nineteen eighty nine, uh, which which split our series into three groups from memory, three groups uh, based on days at uh, at Kasai Porterostomy. So I think or, or weeks perhaps uh, less than six weeks. We'll say uh, six to ten weeks, greater than ten weeks. So three uh, groups, three cells in a chi square test, and. Uh, that shows statistically that the, uh, there was a progression in um, uh, failure to achieve jaundice resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that pushed the UK uh, into trying to get these babies in earlier. Okay. So that was uh, a real, uh, a real um, um, sign that we needed to do something. We shouldn't just hang around. We should all try and get these children done uh, at the earliest possible time. Mark, what's the typical sort of clinical picture of a child with biliary atresia? Okay, yeah, the uh, the, the baby, um, they've all been jaundiced in the first two or three weeks, but typically there's an element of fading because, of course, it's the unconjugated fraction which is, is declining, but it's then taken over by the rising conjugated fraction. So some of them appear to lose their jaundice. It's often difficult to appreciate that you've got a jaundiced baby, mm-hmm. particularly if it's, if it's got a pigmented skin. So the babies in the UK, we live in a multiracial society, babies that are from an Asian background, from a, an Afro-Caribbean background, often uh, you don't, can't really tell how jaundiced they really are until you look into the sclera. Yeah. Uh, and then, it, then it's obvious. But those are those are often our babies that that come late. Uh, if you've no bile in your GI tract, then the colour of the stool feces that the babies produce reverts to its natural clay-coloured appearance, white, creamy, clay-coloured appearance. Um, so that's different. And if you've got uh, high levels of conjugated bilirubin in your blood. 
Uh, conjugated bilirubin is water-soluble, and therefore it, it floods the kidneys uh, and goes into the urine. So the urine colour changes from what should be a very crystal clear colour to a very Coca-Cola-like urine. So unmistakable signs of I mean, spectac- uh, spectacular conjugated uh, jaundice. Not necessarily caused by biliary atresia, but nonetheless, biliary atresia is one of the common causes of con- conjugated jaundice. So you can always find those kind of those kind of triad of clinical features: dark urine, pale, creamy, white stool, and jaundice uh, in these babies when you look for it. All right. What, what's your typical workup for these kids? Uh, well, they they come. Um, someone's finally recognised that this is jaundice beyond uh, fourteen days. Uh, we've got a highly centralised system. So uh, if a kid comes in contact via a paediatrician in a, in a district general hospital, the paediatrician recognises it's conjugated bilirubin simply by the blood test. Perhaps they'll start off looking at the ultrasound, but they won't then embark upon their own personal quest to find out what the cause is. They will ring up our central unit and say, I've got a baby who might be bilirubin uh, and what happens in our central unit, we then switch on the process, if you like, the diagnostic process. So they, they come, uh, they all have a, a diagnostic uh, ultrasound in our department uh, with someone that's been doing it for years. Now, the ultrasound itself, we don't believe can make the actual diagnosis. There are some people that do. They're looking specifically for what's called a triangular cord sign. But we, we don't recognise that necessarily. The value of the ultrasound is actually to exclude um, other surgical causes, uh, so particularly cystic uh, uh, change. Now, cystic change in a baby with a conjugated jaundice could be cystic biliary atresia or indeed a cholidocal malformation, mm-hmm. cystic cholidocal malformation. So that's useful to know. Uh, you can get uh, babies still with inspissated bile, yes. and again, that can be diagnosed uh, on ultrasound. Uh, some of the babies uh, have got what's called spontaneous perforation of the bile ducts. That's quite rare. But again, that could be picked up on the ultrasound. Uh, but most of the babies have their ultrasound. The ultrasound is negative or it shows an atrophic gallbladder. That's highly suspicious. Uh, they'll then get a sort of blood workup for other medical causes of conjugated jaundice, uh, allergial syndrome, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, the various PFIX. Mm. Um, and if all those are negative, then you're left with a liver biopsy in our unit. So okay. you get a liver biopsy, and in 80% of the time, the histologist will say, this shows a typical cholestatic pattern. Uh, you need to tell the surgeon, and we will work them up for a, a mini laparotomy, effectively, to confirm it or deny it. So it's often quite difficult to... Differentiate between hepatitis and bilirubin on a liver biopsy. What are some of the specific things that would give you a clue that it's more in keeping with bilirubin than hepatitis? Well, again, hepatitis is a is a very vague word. So this concept of neonatal hepatitis, again, it's one of those uh, conditions which is there after everything else has been ruled out. Yeah. Um, and if you look back at the series historical series it formed a much greater proportion of cases. Nowadays, uh, with advances in genetics and things like that, 
we're taking bits of, of the medical side and the medical diagnosis away from that neonatal hepatitis picture. Uh, so a, a lot more PFIX are being recognised simply on the fact that they've got positive genes for the various conditions. Um, and neonatal hepatitis is probably a shrinking market, whatever it might be. Yeah. Uh, histologically, is probably the way to actually distinguish. Uh, so again, they've, they've not got bile duct duplication. Uh, they've not really got signs of bile duct plugging. Uh, they've got more giant cell uh, transformation, that kind of thing. Uh, so uh, I think neonatal hepatitis is probably one of the conditions where histology is most useful for discrimination. Okay. Um, is there any role for a HIDA scan? <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, we, we, we advocated HIDA scans actually during the 1980s. Um, but they are relatively non-specific, and in relatively severe liver dysfunction, due to medical causes, uh, you don't get uptake of isotope, and therefore it looks as though it's bilirubinemia. So the discrimination is not that good. Um, we tend to use HIDA scans or reserve HIDA scans for those where the clinician really can't say or can say, actually, that stool looks pigmented. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, what you're trying to do is is show it on a screen uh, that actually the the radioisotope is uh, is below the liver, and therefore these babies cannot have bilirubinemia. So it's it's not usually trying to arrive at a positive diagnosis. It's trying to still exclude it. This brings us to the end of part one on bilirubinemia. Professor Mark Davenport has been studying bilirubinemia for over 20 years now and has the most amazing insights into this complex disease. Next week, we'll be joining him to discover how he operates on bilirubinemia and the ways in which we can all optimize the outcomes of this incredibly interesting disease. Join us next week. Thank you for joining us on Discover Pediatric Surgery. Let your friends and colleagues know so we can all learn together. Catch you next week.